Chapter Three of Aunt Hannah and Martha and John by Pansy and Mrs. C. M. Livingston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter Three: Good Bread and Good Meetings. Maplewood, February eighteenth, eighteen blank. My dear Martha, I was highly pleased to receive a letter from you. I must say it was more than I expected. Young folks nowadays are not fond of the society of their elders. That you can sit down and write a long letter to your old aunt shows, at least, that you had good training. Your mother must have brought you up to have a little respect for old people, and there is none too much of that as far as my observation goes. I do not often speak of this, but I have had my feelings hurt more by young people since I begun to feel that I was an old woman than in any other way. I have been in families where young ladies would flirt in and out, not noticing me any more than if I had been a cat. If they had to sit down a few minutes, they would act as though they supposed I was so old I had forgotten the English language or hadn't any thoughts. I know it is foolish to be worried about it, but I like young folks, and I want my heart to stay young just as long as I live. When I get to be a mummy or an oyster, I shall be glad to leave this world. That makes me think of the sick woman you wrote about. Poor soul, I have tried to pray for her, but I fear it wasn't with much faith. When a body has scorned the Lord's offer of mercy all her life, it seems almost too much to expect that he will receive just the dregs, as it were. We know he did receive one, and if it weren't for that dying thief, it would be hard to have a bit of faith about it. Yet when it comes to that, none of us gets a pass through the gate of the city because of our good lives. Sometimes when I get to thinking about that thief, the love and pity of the Lord seems so wonderful that I feel as if I must go right out and tell every poor sinner about it. You wish I would come and spend a year, do you? Now, child, you think you do, I dare say, but that would be like a good many things that we think would make us happy. When we come to try them, we see our mistake. No, no, it is best for young ones, after they once fly from the home nest, to set up independent of the old birds. I tried once to help two young robins. They were building a nest in the old apple tree right under my bedroom window, and they weren't making it a bit comfortable according to my way of thinking. I watched them until I couldn't stand it any longer. Then I hung little bunches of ravelings on the limbs in plain sight. The stubborn little things wouldn't notice them, but kept on weaving in bits of straw and hay, as if, of course, they know best. One day they were both gone. I took a soft bit of wool and tucked it nicely into the nest. I thought— once they knew how warm it felt to the feet, they would like it. But when that little housekeeper got back, she was mad enough. She made angry sort of chirps that sounded for all the world like scolding, and he helped her along in it, like any foolish young husband. They flew around as if they were crazy and tore that nest to pieces in no time. That taught me a lesson. I shall never meddle with any more nests. I should like to help you about the bread and things, but, after all, experience is the best teacher. You won't let your bread run over many times after one such scrape. Of course, you may have the best flour and yeast in the world, and you may need it for hours, as some do. There isn't a bit of use in it, either. And if you neglect it just a little too long, before you bake it, you will have sour, miserable stuff, full of big holes. It is in making bread as it is in everything else that goes to ruin. Neglect generally makes the trouble. When I went down east last summer, visiting, I left the prettiest garden you ever saw, 
and when I got back there was nothing to be seen but Canada thistle and burdocks as high as the fence, and I have many time in my life got away down and away back, my heart as full of weeds as my garden. What was the matter? Why, I let alone the precious word he gave us to feed upon, and neglected the spot where I used to meet the Lord and speak to him, and he to me. My experience is that nothing thrives where the lazy jade, neglect, gets a foothold. But to come back to bread, no good bread can be made without first-rate, lively, hop yeast, and I'm real glad you want to know how to make it, and don't depend on that abominable stuff they call salt risings and milk emptious. I think my receipt for hop yeast the best there is. I take a handful of hops and steep them in about a quart of water. Then I pare four middling-sized potatoes and grate them and strain the boiling hop water on them, stirring as I pour. Set it on the stove a few minutes and stir it until it thickens up. Put in a tablespoon of salt and set it away to cool. When it is cool enough, milk warm, stir in a teacupful of yeast. That must be saved out each time for the purpose. Likely you can get a little of your neighbor for the first. Cover it and set it in a warm room to rise, every little while giving it a good stirring and leaving it standing in the pantry a couple of days. The oftener you stir it, the whiter it will be. Then put it in a stone jar, cover it tight, and put it in a cool place. It keeps a good deal longer than yeast that has flour and sugar in it. It will be quite thick when it is done, if it is right. That quantity is enough for a small family. I am glad, too, that you know when bread is sour. Not half the people do. Some pride themselves on their handsome white bread, and very likely it will be so sour that it won't be fit to put in any human stomach. But they never know it. Even the bread that just escapes being sour has been made to rise so many times that it has lost all its goodness and tastes like sawdust. It is white, and that's all that can be said about it. Basswood chips are white, too, but who wants to eat basswood? You can count the folks on your fingers who know how to make a light, sweet loaf of hop yeast bread, the kind that tastes like a good, sweet nut. I do hope John will have such to eat, for a man who works with his brains ought to be well nourished. Your prayer meetings must be a good deal as ours in Maplewood were. We used to get together, half a dozen of us, and pray over our old prayers every Thursday afternoon, in a dismal kind of way, as if we didn't half believe in what we were praying about, nor care whether we got it or not. If truth were told, I suppose we were all glad when the meeting was out. I think those were the sort of prayers that wouldn't reach up, though they were long enough for the matter of that. Some people might think, by the way you spoke, that you were opposed to praying for reforms and missions, but I am not going to think that. I know what you mean. Better not pray for what you don't heartily want. I went to a good meeting when I was east, a woman's meeting. You're right about that. I never did like being called a female instead of a woman. That was the best one I ever attended. It was in a large, pleasant room, and an old lady led it. She sat up there, looking as dignified as Martha Washington, with a bright, happy look, as if she expected a real good time. When the ladies came in, she would introduce those who were not acquainted, saying, I think we all ought to know each other, we that love the Lord. The chairs were placed, so that they were all seated in a circle around the leader, about twenty of us in all. Let's sing Rock of Ages, she said. We won't want to read it. An hour is so short. Now, it was new to me that an hour was a short time for a meeting. I know we always had hard enough work to fill it up in our meetings. 
The singing was good and lively, because someone started it off in a firm, strong voice, as if she wasn't afraid. That gave others courage. Then the leader prayed, just for this, that the Holy Spirit would help everyone who spoke or prayed, and that Jesus himself would be there. Then each one repeated a verse or two that told something about the Lord's mercies and loving-kindness. There wasn't any waiting. After they had sung another verse, the leader said, Now, we won't waste any time waiting for each other. Let's each one speak a word of some particular thing, if we can, wherein the Lord has been merciful to us this last week. The woman next to her seemed in a hurry to tell what she had to say. She was one of those handsome, tasty women, too, looked as if she likely had all she wanted of this world's goods. But her words showed that her treasure wasn't on the earth. She said her heart was so full of joy she did not know how to tell it. Her only son, who was in Philadelphia, studying medicine, had been but a half-and-half-Christian for years. Yesterday, she said, I got a letter from him. He says he has given all of himself to the Lord now, and he has peace like a river. Oh, I cannot tell you how glad I am that the Lord has answered my prayer. Then someone asked about consecration, if it was everybody's duty. Another quoted a text, proving that it was. Then another pulled a little book out of her pocket and read what the wonderful man, Mr. Finney, thought about it. Another said, a word and another, and, before they knew it, they were all talking away as sociably as if they had been at a quilting or sewing society. When there was a little pause, that woman, who could sing like a robin, struck up, Now I resolve with all my heart, with all my powers, to serve the Lord. After the singing, a woman in a coarse blanket shawl and an old faded bonnet spoke, and these are the very words she said. Some of you have heard how I lost all my money. I've been years and years digging and scraping by the hardest work to earn it, for I made it all by washing. I put it in the bank that I thought was as safe and strong as the hills, and now it is gone, all gone. But it's not about that I'll be talking. I've been to Cedar Creek to stay a week with my daughter. She and her husband have been converted. Now isn't that better than gold? The Lord has taken that, but he has given me what is better. I never spent such a happy week in my life. Besides, he took out of my heart the dreadful hate I felt at first for the man who cheated me out of my hard earnings. I can pray for him. I am going to work again with my soul full of joy, and I shall sing as I work. He will keep me. I have his promise. Isn't that better than a banknote? Then a young girl told how she had been a member of the church four years, but she hadn't been a happy Christian. She had tried to belong to Christ and follow fashion and gaiety. But I can't, she said. The two won't go together. She said she was miserable, got so she didn't enjoy the world or religion either. Sometimes she'd think she'd give it all up, but she was afraid to do that. Then she gave up her gay life and determined to be very good. She read good books and went to all the meetings and gave to the poor, but that didn't help her. One day, said she, Jesus showed it all to me, that the doing or not doing wasn't going to be of any use till I rested with all my heart on him, and now I am happy since I learned to trust. Then a woman said, I want to thank him before you all today for a great thing he has done for me. I told him I would. I don't suppose any of you know that I have a violent temper, for I usually control it before strangers. I fell into a grievous habit of scolding. I scolded the servants and my children, and even my husband. Everybody dreaded my tongue. 
I was sorry for it when I got over my vexation. Often I promised my Savior I would not do it any more, but before I knew it something would go wrong, and I would scold again. One day, when I was in despair, I got to thinking if the Lord could do such a wonderful thing as change the heart in the first place, he could also break the chains of a sinful habit. I went and told him that he knew I had tried again and again to conquer it, but I could not. Then the Lord put into my heart to call quickly to him when I felt my anger rising. I have done it now for many weeks, and have been wonderfully kept from my besetting sin. I don't think I am boasting. I do not do it. I could not. I deserve no more credit for it than you do, because the sunshine streams into these windows and makes the room bright and pleasant. There was one woman who had not said a word. She had a pale face and wore an old, thin shawl. I haven't anything joyful to tell, she said. My husband is good and kind, if he would let drink alone. He does try to, but he is terribly tempted. We have four children and nothing to live on. If the Lord doesn't have mercy on us, I don't know what we'll do. I came to this meeting to ask you to pray for my husband. Let us pray, said the leader. We all knelt, and those women, one after another, poured out their hearts before the Lord. They rejoiced with the joyful ones, and cried with the sorrowing drunkard's wife. How they did pray for that tempted man! How earnest they seemed, pleading to be entirely consecrated! It was just beautiful when we arose from our knees to see them all, rich and poor, gather around the drunkard's wife and speak kindly to her and promise to help her. Such prayers mean something, to my mind. I went out of that meeting feeling as if I had had a taste of heaven. Rebuked, too, for I had thought, of course, that all the good people lived at Maplewood, and that city people were on the high road to destruction. I made up my mind that our prayer meetings at home should be different if I could bring it about. Why shouldn't we bring our everyday joys and troubles to our meeting, and talk about and pray over them? Why shouldn't we pray for Tom Jackson and Joe Miller, who were going to ruin with drink, instead of praying in a general roundabout way, that the flood of intemperance that is sweeping over the land may be arrested? Our meetings are better." Tell John, Aunt Jane writes, that the only trouble with their work in India now is the lack of money to carry it on. The way is open before them on all sides. There are even missionaries waiting to be sent, but the board is cramped and can't send them. I think just as you and John do about the word sacrifice. I don't believe that even after we have done our best, our father likes to hear it from us, any more than parents would be pleased to hear their children and ranking themselves among the martyrs because they had been obedient. I shouldn't a bit wonder it, when our eyes get a glimpse of the glory prepared for us, we shall be so ashamed of our sacrifices that we will beg to be allowed to go back to earth and lay down our lives for him. Tell John, too, that I am getting to be a sort of missionary myself in my old age, amongst the factory hands. It is queer, the way it came about. I'll tell him sometime— but I begin to see why Sister Jane is so happy in her work. The wages are good. You say John thinks there are very few women like me, and I should hope it was so. I am glad the boy loves me, but one who is best acquainted with me knows that I don't deserve any praise. I am saving a little jar of October butter for you, as sweet as the day it was made, and some nice honey. You and John must come over and see me before long. That you may be a blessing to each other is my daily prayer. Your affectionate Aunt Hannah. 
The way it came about that Aunt Hannah had a mission was this. During the last years, a factory had established itself two miles from Maplewood. The usual community had sprung up about it, but as yet there was no church nearer than the village. In consequence, the children of the little hamlet were growing up to regard the Sabbath as a mere play-day. Mr. Brewster went over occasionally to preach, but both he and Mrs. Adams had been in trouble of mind for some time about these heathen at their doors. The subject had been brought to the notice of the church, and an effort made to establish a Sabbath school. Nobody, however, was willing to undertake the work, so nothing more than talk had yet been accomplished. One night Mrs. Adams was wakeful. Sleep was impossible. The children of Factoryville were on her heart. Something must be done for them at once. She went over all the puzzle. It was a shame to let things go on as they were. But suppose she got up a school herself. Where could a superintendent be found? I can't find anybody, and I can't chop one out of wood, she declared almost fretfully, as she turned her pillow over. At last her decision must have been reached, for she fell asleep in a peaceful state of mind, and the next afternoon, immediately after dinner, prepared to act upon her resolutions. She had spent the morning in the pantry making a quantity of delicious little seed-cakes. By two o'clock Dolly and the old carriage were at the door, and Mrs. Adams and a bag of cakes set out to found a mission. I shall do my part, she had resolved, even if I don't see the way clear to the end. After I've done what I can, the Lord will do what I cannot. She first called upon the trustees of the schoolhouse and secured the privilege of meeting there for an hour each week. Then she visited the mothers. Her common sense, her tact, and her warm heart fitted her for such work, as no training in a Bible school could if she had been lacking in these. Every woman in Factoryville, before that afternoon was over, felt that Mrs. Adams was her personal friend, and all promised that their children should be at the schoolhouse at the appointed hour. The next step this wise general took was to happen along just as school was dismissed. She drew up to the roadside and let Dolly nibble grass while she got acquainted with the children. It was not difficult. Young people of all ages have an affinity for Aunt Hannah. She asked them to get her some of the scarlet maple leaves on a tree in the pasture, and forthwith every boy and girl scampered to do her bidding, bringing treasures of glowing leaves, whereupon they were liberally rewarded with seed-cakes. Then Mrs. Adams took into her buggy some of the younger ones and brought them on their way, and the triumph was complete. The next thing was to find someone who was willing to take charge of the school, but all pleaded inability of some sort. Saturday night came, and nobody was provided. "'Go yourself,' said Mr. Brewster. "'Nobody is fitter.' and Mrs. Adams went, after again spending a sleepless night and protesting that she was getting old and was slow of speech. The one who silenced that other objector, promising, I will teach thee what thou shalt say, overcame her reluctance also. She attempted nothing that first Sunday but teaching the little children a passage of scripture and telling them a Bible story. But in her graphic way of telling it, accomplished much, gaining their undivided attention, and awakening thought and conscience. After that, Mrs. Adams always went without protest. Two other women, like-minded with herself, accompanied her, one of whom could sing. And so the Factoryville mission was established on a firm basis. One of its chief charms was the Bible story at the close of the school, but it had no superintendent. Aunt Hannah would not allow herself to be called by that name. End of chapter 3